0: We're picking up our story in 2 Samuel so way later now and uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 I'm going to read to you a few verses from 11 and then a few verses from 12 so a couple of chunks of of writing here Uh, this this involves uh, the events after David's crowning so he's now the king Uh, he's he's come out of the the hazardous time of his life it would seem he's come out of the time where Saul was hunting him down. Saul is long gone by now. Um, but you can be out of the, the dangers of one kind and not realize you're walking into dangers of quite another. And uh, you all face various phases in your walk. And some of you, you've left a certain phase long, long ago. And the the dangers and the troubles and the trials that used to snare you and hurt you, you've not felt the pain of them and probably never will again because they're things of the past. And that's good. (laughs) It's nice to know that some things are gone. Uh, But the reality is that until we see Jesus, we'll have new enemies uh, at different phases of our lives and uh, different kinds of trial. And so to prepare yourself wisely for the season you're in and to know what you're likely to face next is one of the important skills, I suppose, of Christian manhood. You are all different men, but you're also men at different stages. Some of you are in your youth, and youth is so different than middle years. Some of you are in your middle years, and you know that youth is different from middle years and Some of you in your later years. And and there is a whole list of things that are just different about each. And the temptations and the weaknesses that come with each are very different. Um, And so you mustn't fool yourself sometimes into thinking because you seem to be successful over the apparent foes of your teens that you're... (laughs) killing it over sin in every part of your life. Because actually you may, you may not realize that you've fallen right into some of the traps of your 30s. Not Because you thought, well, I'm, I'm not dealing with any of the sins I used to deal with when I was in my teens or 20s. That's not quite the point anymore. There are things that are right now before you, challenges right now before you. There are, there are things that will, will, will come to you in your 40s, you guys in your 20s and 30s, that you need to anticipate or things that will come to you in your 60s and 70s that guys right now in your 40s and 50s need to anticipate. You need to think, that is going to be a temptation for me. And if you're wise, you'll watch the guys at different stages before, ahead of you and think, what are some of the likely traps I will face, the likely temptations, the likely challenges I will face uh, that I know little of now, but I'm going to have to be ready for them. And so phases are important. But I want to talk to you about the... The well-known temptation that David faced in 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is one of the the famous episodes, one of the sadder episodes, probably the saddest in his own life. And and talk a little bit about temptation, but actually I want to talk to you just as much about the antidote to it, which is contentment. Contentment. That's the, the big theme I want to bring up before we finish. So let's get straight into it. I'm going to read to you from chapter 11. Um, and uh, and we'll read up to verse 17, then then jump to the end of the chapter, and then the, the first few verses of 12. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabba. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful david sent and inquired about the woman and one said is not this bathsheba the daughter of eliam the wife of uriah the hittite so david sent messengers and took her she came to him and he lay with her now she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and and wash your feet. It's not because his feet were particularly dirty. It's a euphemism for, you know, go and have a rest. Go and relax. Go get back to your wife and enjoy your marriage. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, why have you not... Come, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Remain here today also. And then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David and among the people fell. Uriah the the Hittite also died. Skip right down to the bottom of the chapter. When the wife of Uriah, this is verse 26, heard that. Uriah her husband was dead she lamented over her husband when the morning was over David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife bore him a son but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord now it's going to be the first eight verses of 12 and the Lord sent Nathan to David he came to him and said to him there were two men in a certain city the one rich And because he had no pity, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little... I would add to you as much more. Let's just pray together one last time. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your kindness to us as men in this room, that you've loved us, you've foreknown us, uh, you've cherished the thought of us and cared, you've known our stories, You've, you've followed us down and chased us down through our lives pursuing us with kindness and mercy. We thank you for your plans for us. We thank you that you look on your people with delight, not with disappointment. We're so grateful we have such a, a good and kind father and such a savior in our Lord Jesus given for us to bring us into this union we have with you. Grateful that you have plans for loved ones at home. I think of wives that's probably at home right now wondering what's happening, and uh, perhaps mums or sisters or perhaps just friends who are just praying for what happens here in this room today. We want to pray for your great favour to rest on us for this last chunk of our time. In Jesus' name. Lord, we want to pray that the impact of it would be exponential; that the fruit from it will ripple out, will go out. Will, the fruit from it will will be will be great, Lord, in our lives, but also uh, in the lives of those whom we reach out to, those we serve, those we interact with. We pray your blessing, your best blessing. We pray it for Hope Church. We pray it for Ipswich. We pray for the other churches represented here. We, pl- we pray that the Spirit of God would come and bring about the kind of flourishing and blessing that only he can we pray in Jesus name amen amen, amen. amen. okay so this is a story of, of uh, sexual sin sexual failure which is uh, famous and uh, kind of archetypal it it, it it sets the 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 tone, I suppose, when it comes to this subject being dealt with in, in, in the Bible, uh, in many other places, it's, it's famous. Um, it shows something of the importance of sexual purity. It, it, it resonates with what the Bible teaches from the beginning uh, about the sanctity of marriage, uh, about what God intends for marriage, uh, not just for itself, but what marriage represents. Marriage means something. It points to something greater than itself, and because of that, it is profoundly sacred. It's a great mystery, as Paul calls it in Ephesians chapter five. And so we, we, we kind of got to tread carefully around these parts of the Bible. This is this is this is passion. This is emotion. This is a a, a red hot story. It's it always seems to me quite a dramatic and in. in, in Striking that the chapter is—I didn't read the whole chapter um, because of time—but I, 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 if you read it all through, it's—it's it's, it's fascinating that God is only mentioned in the very last sentence. Uh, he's kind of apparently absent. I suppose that's that's a clever literary device. That's the writer being clever, showing how David was operating, operating as if God's absent, operating as if just just. Keeping God very much outside the framework, but you can never keep God outside the framework. He's there. He's there. even in apparent absence, he is present. And uh, he's there at the very last line. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Displeased the Lord, friends, just to stop and think, what does that mean? I suppose we could easily imagine, you know, displeased as in ticked him off. Uh, made made him uh, look forward to giving david a good talking to a little disappointed with david perhaps just seeing the Lord as a nothing more than a rather trivially minded uh, fickle kind of judgmental finger pointer who 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 just looking for the next opportunity to Burn us with with frust- with anger and disappointment or whatever just some of us are, uh, are parents and we know what it's like to have to keep telling kids off and you, you can get to the point where you kind of feel oh, just a crack record I'm just I'm just preaching law to my child constantly saying no stop doing that how many times you? you mustn't do that you mustn't do that and it's good for us to step back and think that's not that's not God when it says it displeased the Lord God's not just judging behavior he he is he is concerned about the things he should be concerned about (laughs) the thing david had done was so wrong it was so wrong sexual sin is so wrong there's a reason it comes up a lot in the bible the reason it seems to get a lot of air time the reason it gets mentioned a lot of men's days some of you are thinking we nearly got through the day Afraid not. <laughs> Pokes itself out at the end of the day, just like God does at the end of this chapter. Sorry, it's it's important. Not just because there's a porn epidemic in the 21st century. Not just because well, there's these issues of that. You know, there's Me Too. There's not because of what's happening now. It's because of what. It's because of eternal things. It's because it really matters to God. And we we can't just we can't actually, although we like to imagine it, perhaps. Uh, sort of unattach a part of our life, our sexual behavior, our, our bodies, and, and sort of attach it back on. That's what we do when we, when we do sexual sin. We, we imagine ourselves like a key ring with a few keys on, and it's like, well, I'll just take that key off, and then I'll put it back on when, when, it's, when it's done its thing. You know, I, I, if I go um, running, I don't want to take a whole jangly bunch of keys with me. I might take one off and just go with the one key. So that's that's not an option when, with our bodies. Paul says in First Corinthians chapter five: he says when you sin sexually, when you sin in this way, you are taking Jesus with you. You you just haven't got that option. Your your, your body is a temple of the spirit. The 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 body that God gave you is now is sacred. Your sexual behaviour is 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 sacred. It it points to God and His ways. Your devotion, your purity, your marital faithfulness speaks of a God who is faithful in His marriage, who is a, a faithful bridegroom to a pure bride or a bride that He's purifying. And so when we are unfaithful, we are blaspheming. We're saying to the world, this is what God is like. This is huge. And David was not being trivial. He was playing with fire of the eternal kind. And so we have to, we have to be straight. We have to be weighty with these things. And I, I say this with all seriousness, because as much as I l- enjoyed being with you guys and uh, want to say all these things with real love for you, the most loving thing to say is this, this next year you will all in different ways face this kind of temptation and some of you might not get through it. Some of you might blow it. There might be guys who when we gather men again in the future aren't here because they made the wrong decision because this came and they did what David did. My heart for you is to hear this a friend of mine says men tend to imagine if they fall into sin, and I guess maybe we can just go broader than just sexual sin now. I, I've made my point, but here on the other levels as well. All kinds of sin, sexual sin especially, I guess. He says we tend to imagine ourselves taking a bullet. So guys will we'll do the wrong thing knowingly, you know, just click on the wrong website, Um Dick around in the office when everyone else has gone and only she's there. Wait in the car park for a bit longer. Get that conversation going longer than it really should. Send that text message. Respond to that, that Facebook message. Stuff that you just say, playing with fire, this isn't right, this isn't right, this isn't right. And you're kind of dancing on the cliff edge. I know I'm mixing images now, but, but he says, it's like we can imagine I'm just taking a bullet. If I, if I blow it, well, it'll just be me. I'll take a bullet. I'll take a bullet. I'll go down. I know I'll go down. But he says, you are never taking a bullet. You're always pulling a pin out of a grenade. It's never just you. It isn't. It isn't. In some way, this is going to hurt more people than you. And frankly, you don't have to be a pastor for very long to see exactly that. It's horrendous sometimes what, what, what happens. All because a guy thought, well, it's just me. I'm just taking a walk. You're never just taking a walk. And, 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 I mean, for David, it affects his life, but it affects his family. It affects his nation, whole nation, in hideous ways. The, whole, the rest of 2 Samuel is basically not much happy in the rest of this whole book, and there's chapters and chapters and chapters to go. So that's a bleak picture. There's more hope that we can give, way more than that, but we need to face the reality and face the reality of Deception. If david, who let's be honest was godlier than any man in this room i can't let's let's be real there's I mean his love for God, his purity and devotion to God was like nothing that we could if he could fall in this, please don't be foolish. <laughs> imagine that you can't it's it's just so obvious let's please like like Paul says in the new testament if anyone thinks he stands, let him take heed lest he falls. The worst thing is to think, "Well, I'm, I've, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm past that one. It won't work." The way it works, temptation, is 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 it entices you and then destroys you. But you you think that you're you you think for a long time after you've crossed the line, you can actually think that you're safe or you're able to reverse or. Put, a guy put it like this: a powerful illustration. Imagine a, a, a hunter catching wolves in the Arctic Circle. I'm told this is what they might do: they'd stick a bayonet in the ground and put blood on the blade. And wolves are attracted to the blood, the scent of the blood, so they'll come over. They'll lick the blood on the on this sharp bayonet, and because of the frostbite, they won't notice. No, they won't notice that they're cutting themselves. And eventually, they're basically drinking their own blood and dying. That's how to catch a wolf. <laughs> it's as simple as that. They just, they're drawn over by something, and eventually they are drinking themselves they're drinking their own blood. That's, that's, what, that's how it works, a temptation. Just a little bit of pleasure. All, this, all that Satan has to give us is a little bit of pleasure. But eventually he can have us hooked. He can have us self-destructive. What I want to do, though, is look, first of all, at why David got into this. And, and there's one really big answer to give at the outset that I want us to unpick a little. And that is right there in verse 1. It's, it's just an embarrassing sentence it starts with. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. At the end of the verse. And David remained at Jerusalem. There you go. That's it right there. David wasn't at war. Remember what we said in the first session? He's a soldier, and there is a real enemy. In fact, Joab has gone off to fight the Ammonites in what was an important war. Uh, It turns out, a a chapter earlier, that war is described, how it began, what it came from. And it was a war that eventually Joab won. It's a, a war that was good, a war they were meant to win. David had delegated it. I, I, I'll stay back in Jerusalem. I'll stay back at the palace. He wasn't at war. And the question is, are you? Are you at war? Are you, in your heart, signed up for battle? This is, this is inescapable because Jesus called us this way. And you know what we said earlier? I don't mean literally. He didn't. When his, when his disciples turned up with us, one of them turned up with a sword. and He told them, not, that's not what I mean. But at other points, he was very clear. He says, do not think I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. If you, if you want to follow me, you, you're coming to war. It's a battle. You have an enemy. And frankly, friends, if, if as Christian men, we don't have a martial attitude we will get beaten up constantly. We will get constantly defeated by sexual temptation especially. And it can be as simple as that. We haven't been thinking like soldiers. We haven't. We've, not been, we've been thinking as though things will. we will drift into success. You will not drift into success in the fight against sexual temptation. You will not. Something you need to hear that you you're, you're hoping for that, and you mustn't. You must give up on that. You won't drift into it. It's time to to fight. It's time to think. Right, I'm going to be warlike on this. I'm going to be brutal. I'm, I'm, Jesus talked about cutting things off. He, again, he's being, he's making the point strongly. All right, he's he's trying to get our attention. Be brutal. Deal with your, your, your deal with your time. Get get into relationships of accountability. Deal with your modem. Deal with whatever. Just do what you have to do. Do what you have to do. It's, it's, the stakes are high, so fight, fight, be a fighter. It won't work if you just drift. I hope you're hearing me. This is this is this is life or death for some of us. I'm not trying to freak you out unnecessarily. I'm trying to help you to not waste years. You might think, well, well I'm not. It's not. You know, I don't live in David's. This is an ancient book. It's not my nine to five. It is actually, it really is. There's a war that you're called to fight in, you're called to win. So be brutal with it. But why wasn't David there? Let's just unpick this. For a f- there's a few layers here to really help us. What stopped him in his in his warlikeness that he should have had at this stage of his life? Okay, I'll give you a few suggestions why I think he may have been not at the front when he should have been. First of all, this is a war. That it starts at the beginning of chapter 10. It's still going on. I wonder if there's a bit of disappointment in David. A bit of discouragement at how long things have taken. A sense of weariness with old battles carrying on that he thought were done. I thought by this time, I thought by autumn 2018, this situation would have resolved. I thought we would have got that extension built. I thought my budget would, I thought my finances would be fixed by now. I thought I have to stop spending money on my stupid car. I, I thought my marriage would be a little bit better by now. But, but it's still not right. I've still got this problem. My kids are still being so difficult at the moment. And I, I wait and I've even prayed. Some of you have prayed and prayed, maybe prayed and fasted. And you've not seen the answer yet. And the book of Proverbs says, Proverbs 13, hope deferred makes the heart sick. That's a big verse, isn't it? When you've hoped for something, oh, it's still not right. You can get sick in here. Sick in the heart. That's a big thing to deal with. And it will lead you into vulnerability. Sometimes the default mode, the screensaver of our minds, is general discouragement. Just gen- that's kind of what we revert back to. We just live there. I just live there. I just feel generally discouraged. And, and that's a battle, isn't it? I know what I'm talking about. When you go through seasons of life where I basically, that's why I have my flashes of joy, but I generally live in a place of discouragement. It's interesting to me when David prays his big prayer of repentance in Psalm 51 after the sin with Bathsheba when he gets right with God one of his his prayers is restore to me the joy of your salvation. What's happened? Why did he fall into sin? He hadn't been joyful. Maybe for months. He just hadn't been rejoicing. There's no joy left for David. Guys who just Make friends with discouragement. Like we said earlier, have been holding the wrong hand for too long. Too long. Like Just problem after problem, setback, and God doesn't answer my prayers. Just hasn't answered my prayer. And you're, this is the tape you're playing. This is the hand you're holding. You're, you're in danger, my friend. I made friends with a pastor about 10 years ago now, actually, um, who lives in another part of the country. Really good guy in many ways I thought in some ways his life pattern was similar to mine same sort of age same sort of story the reason I got in touch with him was, or the reason I, I was, they got in touch with me was because he's, he went through a crisis he, he, he was unfaithful committed adultery as a pastor and just total turmoil marriage family church chaos chaos and uh, there's, there's, a, there's, some, there's a wonderful, happy side to it. And there's been some wonderful restoration. His marriage has been restored, praise God. But he, he was in the midst of the darkest. Moment. I remember I met him once and said to him, tell me why. Tell me what ha- why did you do this? What happened? And his one, one of the phrases he said, stuck with me, he said, discouragement is dangerous. Discouragement is dangerous, brothers. Do you hear that? It's not a good place to stay. I, we get discouraged, yeah. Let's be real. We will get discouraged. You you will definitely have to face seasons and moments. And some some of you, it's a particular melancholic strain in you that you, you kind of. It's a big temptation for you. But you, you might, it's not a neutral thing. Discouragement. It's got a bias in it. It will drag you away from joy. It will drag you away from contentment. It will make you a little more vulnerable. It's dangerous. Be careful with it. Be careful you don't befriend it too much. Be careful. Watch your heart. Watch yourself. Second thing I see, your second suggestion, okay, disappointment. I wonder if it's a similar thing, but a little nuanced. Just battle weariness. Battle weariness. And what I mean by this is it's interesting. You may have come across the idea of the, the kind of... Uh, the battle-hardened soldier who's seen everything, been to every theater of war, and is ready and hard and not frightened by anything because he's tough and so he you throw anything at him and he's just just battle-hardened. The truth is that that kind of character is quite rare. So military historians will tend to say, actually, what's more typical is what we would call battle weariness where where people say i could never go back to it again i don't want to go back i don't ever never i just i've seen too much i've been there i went to afghanistan or iraq or whatever and i just i couldn't go back that's that's more typical when people have seen real conflict i guess i wonder if david's by this point just weary of the bloodshed and the war Weary of the fighting. Weary of the fight. And just we'd rather delegate it. Rather pass it off to other people. I suppose there is a, there's certainly a, a certain kind of entitlement that could creep in when you've got others who will do things for you. is perhaps a temptation for those of us with a high level of authority in our jobs. High responsibility. Some of you, you've got a lot of people. You can push around. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying it can create temptations in you. Create a certain sense of entitlement. And actually a certain sense of weariness with the pressure. I'm just tired of always being accused of things that I haven't got anything to do with. I, I, I can't help this situation. I can't change that. I'm, I, I can imagine this is why politicians are often falling into adultery. I think that's probably one of the reasons. It's because they get weary and entitled. I'm just tired of all the time in the press or social media, whatever I do, I'm bad. I try and fix it and then I'm bad again. And so, what's the, just, and then just gradually, if someone would just understand my responsibility. No one understands what it's like to be in charge, it's so hard, no one gets it. It's really hard being king. Really hard. I should be allowed a little bit of gratification, a little bit of action with this lady. No, it doesn't. I just, I, I deserve it. I deserve it. Entitlement. Maybe that's what's going on as well. Third p- possibility, again, very linked. It's actually, it's kind of, he's 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 just arrived too much. <laughs> What do I mean by this? It's like he's he's forgotten what he's king for. So there's a guy called Stephen Sample who wrote a book called Contrarian's Guide to Leadership, which is a very good book. But There's a chapter at the end just called Being President Versus Doing President. And it's worth the price of the book. He says, what tends to happen, and you can see this, it seems, with, with politicians, what tends to happen is the goal becomes status i must get into number 10 i must get into the house i must get into office that's the goal for many people if you were to really get them to be honest what is it you want to do with your life i want to get voted in that's what i want i want to get into the job why so i can have the job so i can be the pm so i can i, I want i just always want to be that but, but that's not leadership. A leader is someone who gets into the job because they, they have a vision of something great they want to do with the job. A politician is someone who's satisfied with the job. Maybe David's become a politician by now. Maybe. Maybe he's just content. Yeah, I'm the king. I made it at last. It was a hard road. But I'm the king. What are you doing? What are you doing at the moment? Is, have you seen the thing that you're giving your life to? Or is it possible that you've arrived? You've got it. You've got the post. You've set yourself this goal. I want to get this position on the organizational chart. I want to make headmaster. I want to be, I want to make deputy. I want to make chief of medicine. I want I want to, I don't know what it is. I want to be chairman. I want to be CEO. Like Whatever. I want to be pastor. What could it be? And I've made it. Oh, that's it then. Right, just, so that's it, is it? Next 20 years, just sit around? You're, you're a sitting duck. You're just waiting for distraction. You need, you need a dream. <laughs> you need something that you're burning to do. I wonder with David. It's, I mean, it's hard to imagine this with David, to be fair. But who knows? That's, it's just that's something we should surely at least be aware of. In our work, in our callings, whatever they are. I I guess I guess at the heart of all this, for some the season you're in will, will will affect the way that this temptation comes to you. But in all cases, brothers, be thinking, what is it I want? What is it that you desire? Really, not just in a worship time with your hands raised. What do you want tomorrow morning? What do you want Monday morning? What are you waking up longing for? What are you thinking of? What are you, what are you losing sleep in a good way about? Because the desire that drives you will shape your decisions. And when in a very flippant moment of sexual temptation, the question is very easily answered. What do you want? I want her. I just want, I want this now. Right now, let me ask you to, at, at every moment, think, I want God. Simple as that. I want God. I want God. At those times, if the beauty of God has dazzled you enough, the goodness of God, the loveliness of God has got your attention enough, if, he's, if the, the sheer wonder of God, and who He is—this this God that we've been singing about—has preoccupied you enough, and keeps preoccupying you. you. Your your desires are more controllable. I want God. And those moments of temptation, reminding yourself, I have seen something more beautiful than that. I have seen something more stunning than that, and I want that so much. I want this God so much. I want this beautiful one so much. What are the wants that drive you? What is the I deserves that drive you? I deserve this. I deserve this gratification. Actually, no, you don't. Let's not talk about what you deserve. Let's not go there. That's a hard thought. What do I really deserve? I read the Bible. I read what Jesus said about me. Not encouraging. What I deserve is pretty bad. So please let's not yield to the entitlement of oh, I deserve this bit of gratification. Not at all. Not helpful. I want, I deserve. I can handle. I can handle this. You can't, brother. You you can't. That's why God's given you a church. That's why God's given you people around you. So I mean the last thing I would say as a probable weakness for David is his sheer isolation. His sheer isolation, that's the fourth one. He's isolated himself, obviously. He's back in Jerusalem, pushing paper around. He's not, he's not on the battle lines. He's isolated from the front. And again, it's so dangerous for him. I, I would have probably lost count of a number of people that have come up to me, sometimes after a sermon like this, certainly in my church, and have said to me, pray for me. I need help. I don't want to fall into sin. I'm struggling in this. And I will say, Great, I'll pray for you. Let's pray. Let's talk about this. Let's pray. And then I'll say, right now we've prayed, this is the next step for you. You need to get into a small group. You need to get into a relationship with a few other men in the church who are going to meet with you regularly and ask you some of the difficult questions. And suddenly all the I'm desperate for help is replaced by, well, I don't think I need I think I'm okay. I think I I think this prayer has probably done it. The prayer. The prayer works. Excellent. I love the way you prayed. It was excellent prayer. You think, where did all the desperation go? I thought you were desperate. Well, I'm not that desperate. I'd rather isolate myself, thank you very much. What are you you expecting? How how are you expecting to win this thing? You You won't. You really won't. I'm sorry. You just won't. You've got to have these brothers. You've got to have them. I just want Jesus. Well, Jesus always turns up with his friends. Have you noticed? And they're really annoying. All these Christian friends. They're Christian questions. But you, you need those friends. You do. You need them in your life so much. And so when your pastor or your whoever, whoever it is, that says to you, you need to get in a small group. You need to, I, I, I don't really think, I Brother, please. Now, I'm not being legalistic. The the kind of small group, the kind of let's let's be creative. Let's. But you need to be in fellowship. You need to be in community. You need to have brothers. You need to think. Oh, I don't. Well, I don't have in this church. Well, fight. Work hard. Make them. Get them. Get them. You might be the first one. But create that culture. Do all you can to create it. It's huge. So let's talk about how Nathan deals with him as the last chunk of this, because this is fascinating, it's so helpful. This is so good. I love this. God sends Nathan, just like he sends us brothers, yeah? And you need someone who comes to you before, ideally. But say if say whatever situation, maybe comes after, comes before the sin, comes after the sin. Either way we need Nathan's in our lives. God sends Nathan to David, and the way he does it is brilliant. I love the way Nathan does this. He's so skillful. He's like a judo player. He's like a judo player against a really overweight wrestler. (laughs) David's just kind of, he's kind of all flaring up with passion. Nathan plays this brilliant little trick on him. He he, he knows. You can't go into the royal palace. Generally, today, you probably would struggle to go into the, the Oval Office and just sort of try and, you know, it's quite hard to impeach Donald Trump, as the Democrats have found out. It's not, it doesn't, it's not that easy. And, and so to go any time to the place of power and try and take them down, yeah, you can yell all you like, but you're, they're not going to necessarily move for you. They're not going to hit their conscience that easily. In those days, it was even harder. Because <laughs> they didn't just ignore you, they killed you. <laughs> so David's going to have to be approached with care. So Nathan goes to David and tells him a story, and it's so smart, because all it does, it brings out all David's righteous indignation, all of his virtue signaling. It's kind of, you know, this story about this unjust man who's took someone else's lamb. Who did this? This man deserves to die. He knows his, he knows his mark. David, what do you care about? You care about justice? We know that about David. And you care about sheep? <laughs> He knew exactly what he was on. <laughs> so so David, David's totally fallen for it. Just, whoa, whoa, fuck this bloke. And lands right on the sword. You know, just to get the judo player picks him up and bash right on the, on the floor. You're the man. And of course, Nathan's completely cut through all of the foolishness, all of the self righteousness, all the falsehood. And then, and then he starts to speak to him about the heart issue. Now, I've been trying to deconstruct David here. Nathan follows through brilliantly. He says in verse 7, You are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives Weird moment in the verse, I get, you know. Master's wife, well. does that mean God's in favor of polygamy? No. First page of the Bible, you'll notice that. God's not in favor of polygamy. One way to see that is God's almost saying, if you're into that sort of thing, you had plenty of wives. Not that He approves of Him having more than one wife, but, but saying, so, you know, you, you, it's not as if, I mean, you were just over the top with women. I gave you. Your master's house, your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And this, as if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. What's God saying? He's saying, David, you have been irrational. It makes no sense because sin makes no sense. Temptation to sin makes no sense. It, it just doesn't. When you stop and consider what, God has given you. David, I gave you so much. I gave all this to you. What did you lack? It makes no sense. And here we have, guys, the absolute heart of the temptation, the way it works. It, it, it thrives on your lack of contentment. That's where, it, that's where it does its work. It, it does its work on your sense of being deprived. On your sense of not being looked after, not being loved enough, not being treated as kindly as you'd like. It thrives on that. It's been like that from the beginning, right? That's, this is how sin came into the world. Our first parents, how did it creep in? The first man and woman, innocent, pure, no sin in the garden, nothing. But a snake comes into the garden and whispers to them, basically words to the effect that God was against them. That was it, really. That was the the germ of it. Did God say that if you touch this tree, you'd, you'd die? Did he say that? And, and you won't surely die. You won't die. You won't. He just knows that if you eat it, you'll be as powerful as him. It's very persuasive. I tell you, some of you, some of your parents, when you're trying to encourage your kids on the right path, you sometimes see it in their eyes, a sense, you don't want me to be happy. No, I do. That's why I'm saying don't do that. Because it's not going to give you joy. No, you must be depriving me. There's something about that that you don't want me to have. You don't want me to be happy. You don't want me to be joyful. And this has been our our instinct from then, from that primal point in our history. Ever since, the thing we've dealt with, the thing we've been, been diseased by, is this horrible, false intuition that somehow our God, our Creator, does not want our happiness he doesn't he doesn't he does not know what makes me happy i know better than he does how i will be happy i will be happy with this woman i will be happy with this website i will be happy with this illicit money i will be happy with this gambling i will be happy with this alcohol i will be happy with this fix i know how to be happy he doesn't That's what we tell ourselves. And it's wrong. We don't know. We don't know what makes us happy. We are wrong. We are deceived. We don't know. When we trust the one who does know, he says, my joy I give to you. Pleasures at his right hand forevermore. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. How happy, in other words. Blessed is a bit of a religious word. How happy is the man who takes refuge in him. You want to be happy? Don't trust your idea of what will make you happy. Trust his. He knows much better and he's given us a whole book wisdom. How to find joy. How to find gratification, satisfaction, contentment. He's not holding out against you. This is why so often later in the Bible, when it gets to the prophets, these verses, Jeremiah, for example, in chapter two, when he's, God's dealing with His people who turned away from Him to worship false gods, who are wicked, horrible, disgusting gods—that you know, things like the god that Moloch, who made them sacrifice their children, their babies—and they thought, "Oh, this is a good god. Yeah, we like the other nations worship this god, like this one." What is that about? Why would they be attracted? And God says to Israel, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? And later in the same chapter, he says, have I been a wilderness to Israel or a, lack of, a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say, we are free. We will come no more to you. Have I been a wilderness to you? This is, the, this is the word of God to some of you right now. Some of you who are tempted towards sin, tempted towards the wrong relationship, tempted towards ending your marriage, tempted towards making dumb decisions. God says, have I been a wilderness to you? Have I ever been a real wilderness to you? Do you why don't you trust me? Why don't you trust me? Here's the thing. God sometimes takes you through a wilderness. He sometimes takes you through a season where it's not very happy. It's not very it's difficult, it's painful. But we make the mistake of thinking, that's him. He's the wilderness. No, He's taking you through one so that you learn to dig deep and find your joy in him, because there's not much to be found anywhere else for a season. It's a few years of not much joy, not much prosperity, not many promotions, not much respect. Difficulty. I've been single for, for years. I want to get married. God won't give me a wife. When's she going to come along? It's a, it's, a, it's a wilderness. God doesn't want me happy. No, far from it. He wants you happier than you could ever know. So you're going to have to dig into him. You have to find him in the wilderness. Because that's, that's where you'll stay as you learn this lesson. But like Adam and Eve, we, we are too easily suspicious. We need to be lost in wonder. More amazed at all that he's done for us. More amazed at his loving kindness. His goodness to us. It's just like just knocked off our horse with amazement at how kind he's been to people like me and you who, frankly, are not worthy, don't deserve it. We are not worth it, no matter what L'Oreal says. <laughs> we are not. But he chooses, he loves, he's, he is that extraordinary, that kind, and that gentle and gracious. Oh God, you take my shame, you take my guilt, you put me in your at a place at your table, you lavish me with love, you treat me with with honor, you honor me, you cover me with honor. Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 18, he says, Unless you become converted and be like little children, you cannot enter this kingdom. That's a funny verse. Unless you are converted, he's talking to converts. These are the disciples. He says, unless you're converted. And he gets a little child up in front and says, become like this little one. Be- get converted. Be like this little one. I-, I thought I was a convert. I've been following you around, haven't I? For years. Yeah, you need to be converted. <laughs> like what? You need to be like this child. What-, what is it about children? I'll tell you one thing about children. They, they are more lost in wonder than we are. They, they are They are less quickly bored that they are <laughs> to the point where it becomes a little if you're a, if you're a sophisticated adult, a little bit frustrating like if i if I say to my youngest son something he finds funny if i if I say something to a forty year old that he finds funny, he's sophisticated enough to just not laugh too much but just carry on the conversation if If Billy finds something funny he says, say it again <laughs> and, and then you okay, I'll say it again. Say it again. And then you say it about half an hour later, he's still, saying, he's still laughing. He still finds it funny. He's got the afternoon set up. You know, he could keep going. <laughs> Just keep saying it again, again, again. What, what is this? You're not being, this, this is not funny anymore. And G.K. Chesterton used to say, maybe the reason the sun rises every morning is because God is younger than we are. Because every morning he loves it and he says, do it again. God's younger than we are. We're the ones who say, yeah, I've seen that. I've been there. I've been to Venice. I've, I've, yeah, I've, been, I've been to the Grand Canyon. God's, God's not like that. He's lost in wonder. He's amazed. And Jesus says, you get converted. Be like this little child. I'm saying this to say this, brothers. The fight against sin and temptation is not going to happen through willpower. It's going to happen through you being more often lost in wonder. More often, just, just, just amazed at God. Yes. Amazed at who he is. Amazed at what he does. Giving thanks to him in all circumstances. Giving thanks to him for everything. Everything. I don't just mean in meetings or in prayer times. I don't just mean the spiritual stuff as we think of it. I mean in everything. Giving thanks all the time. Giving thanks when you watch Match of the Day later. Don't chop your life in half. Don't do that. I've got the spiritual stuff and then I've got my real life. No, no, no. This is where you give thanks to God. Enjoy him. Be thankful. Be grateful. Be thinking of of him. Be bringing him into all these contexts. Rejoice in him. Thank him. Give praise to him. It will set set you on a path that's safer. It will keep you a little bit safer. Learn how to do that. Put it into the rhythm of your life. Nearly done. Two more things before we finish. The way Nathan talks to David, he tells this story. This, this This is the striking thing again. Nathan tells a story about a man who takes someone else's lamb. A a, a man who has all of this wealth, but when it comes to receiving a guest, he doesn't use his own lamb. He's that that stingy, that selfish and greedy. The context of this is the Middle East, and especially in ancient times and probably still now, guests are an honour. I get, to ha- I get to have a guest. That's th- I get a chance to be hospitable. What an honor. You've come to my house. I will host you. I will serve you. I will feed you. And all the animals will be terrified. Because <laughs> guests, guests means carnage. That's what it means. If, if guests come, lambs wet themselves. No, not a guest. So well, which, which one is it going to be? Because there's a guest here. So, so that's, that's what the normal expectation would be. Because well, when, when we celebrate life, you come around to my house, we sit down. We eat together. We do fellowship. We, we reconcile. We connect. We befriend. We, we shed blood to do it. Someone's going someone's gonna to die so that we can be friends. This is, this, is, this is what it means. Jesus says, when he came into the world... It says, the Son of Man came into the world eating and drinking. When, at the very beginning of the Bible, God, God starts history with a man and woman in a garden, lots of food, lots of food, enjoy the food. When he turns up in, in the books of the law, it, it's, it's all in the context of, of sacrifice and food. It, it Climax is when priests get to actually be in the presence of God and take the meat and the sacrifices. It's, it's, all, in, it's all in the context of a meal. And then when God talks about the end of time in Isaiah, chapter 25, 26, he talks about a place of feasting. When God shows up, people feast. When God shows up, you sit down and you eat together. You have fellowship. When God shows up, you can relax and have fun and be together at the table. This has always been his way. The way Jesus told us to remember him was by a table. Bread and wine. I want you to be together in fellowship over a meal. That's how we do things, says God. So so when David's told this story (coughs) about someone who, for the sake of fellowship with a stranger, goes and steals someone else's lamb, it's showing us the direct opposite of the heart of God. What does God do to welcome us into his table when we, the strangers, come knocking? Will we be accepted? Will we find a place at his table? Will he have a seat for me? Do I deserve a seat? No. No, after a sermon like this, none of us feel like that, do we? Oh, gosh, I'm so ashamed. Things that have been on my mind, the sins I struggle with, the temptations I fight, feel such a mess, feel so worthless. Would God ever accept me (sighs) with open arms? Oh, with open arms. He runs to us, come sit down. The whole party's for you. You're the reason the band's here. You're the reason I'm dressed up. Come sit down. How how did you do this? Where's the animal? Where's the but what's the lamb? It's, well, it's my favorite lamb. The one that it says that this this man he treated the lamb like his daughter. Well, we have a father who whose son is called the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the earth. God takes his best. His one and only, actually. Why? Why would he do this? So we could come and sit at his table, so scum like me. <laughs> could be at his table honoured as sons in the household of God. That's what I am. That's what you are. Isn't this incredible? This is the gospel. Nathan's saying, David, don't you know what your father's like? What have you become? And David's, David's given this opportunity. I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan goes on to say, your sin is forgiven. It's directly the next line in the Bible. Your sins are forgiven. How is this possible? How does this work? This is what God's like, friends. And then just as a last thing, I, I, I'm kind of jumping points, but I want, I want to say all this before I go. He, he, he says this last line that I read to you in verse 8. And this is massive because I've been talking about contentment. And he says this at the very end of verse 8. He's listed all the things God gave David. I gave you this, I gave you that, I, I raised you up, I made you king. And then he says, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Now, that's, that's, that's huge. And we should, we should just reflect on it. What is he saying? What's God done for David? Well, David's been given. I mean, the, 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 the scale of what David's been given blows the mind. But let's just call it simply that he has been raised up to be on the throne of Israel. That's, that's enough <laughs> to get us staggered. But then Nathan's saying, but, but, but if that isn't too much, sorry, if, that, if that's not enough, if that wasn't, God would happily give you a bit more. Behold the generosity of God. That's what he's like. Do you understand? Listen. You, you never need doubt the goodness of God. He, because he doesn't give you every answered prayer instantly. Listen, build none of your theology of the goodness of God on your disappointments. And even the things, even the disappointments, the things that you think, oh, I didn't get that. What do you think he's doing? He's working it together for good. He disappointed you, in your words, on purpose because he loves you so much. He, will, he says in Jeremiah, I will not stop from doing good to them. It cannot stop. Even the things that we think are punches in the face from heaven are gift-wrapped presents from God. The pains and difficulties, even those, he works things together for good to those who love him. You cannot get it wrong. And so we need never doubt his goodness. And God's saying to David at this point, I would have given you more. I would have given you more. Now, hear, hear me, friends. That is, a, that is how we need to understand the theme of contentment. Because the danger is, after a sermon like this, when you hear me talk about be content with God's goodness in your life, what you might hear me saying is be content with mediocrity. You can't, no, you can't sleep with her. Be content with your mediocre marriage be content. You, you can't have this. Be content with your difficult life. That's, that's, what you, that's, your, that's your portion. Settle down. That's not biblical. It's not. That's not what Nathan's saying. I would have given you more, is what he's saying. It means, friends, that to be content with the real God means you actually spend your life dreaming about what else you could ask for. You do. That's right, Jesus was like that when he talked to his disciples. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more would your heavenly Father give good gifts to you who ask? The the invitation to make requests that Jesus made is phenomenal, way over the top. A good pastor would never say the things Jesus said. (laughs) Crazy things. Ask anything in my name will be given to you. Ask anything. He's always talking like this. Have you noticed? It's just full of encouragement. Keep asking. Keep asking. I want you to, I want you to accept. He said. I want you to understand, my, my disciple, my beloved children. He said, "Fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Don't be afraid." I, I need to hear that because I'm constantly afraid. I'm constantly thinking, I don't know if I can ask for this. Am I allowed to ask for this? People sometimes say to me at church, "Am I allowed to ask for this? Am I allowed to pray for this?" And I tend to say nowadays. I used to try and give clever answers. But now I've given up, I just say probably the best way to find out is to do it. <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Just ask. Yeah, you, If he's your father, he'll, he will only give you good things. He'll only give you what's right. And so ask. These kinds of verses are there to lift our heads. God, if you said to David, I've given you the kingdom, I've given you the crown, I've taken you away from your enemies, I've rescued you, I've raised you up, but I'll gladly give you more. Then, Lord, I need, I need a longer prayer list. I need to start asking much, much, much more. I need to become a world class asker. That's a Christian, an asker. Are you asking, seeking, knocking? Go on asking, go on seeking, go on knocking. Men are always to pray, Jesus said, and never give up. It's having ambition for Jesus is powerful antidote against temptation. I hope you're ambitious, brothers. Are you dreaming? Are you, are you? What are your hopes and dreams? What do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do with this church? What do you want to do in this city, in this county? What do you want to do? What are the longings in your heart? The more you, 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 you lose sleep for those reasons, the less you'll lose sleep for the other reasons. You start hoping again, dreaming again. Let's pray together right now. See, David was uh, given all this favor from God. And you think, well, that was David. David was God's favorite. David was, was, was God's anointed, the king. But he wasn't as great as his son, his descendant, the Lord Jesus, the son of David. He's the king of kings. And you are in him. That's where you are. So when you start saying, God, should I be asking for these things? Should I be praying these prayers? What can I expect from God? You can expect what Jesus has asked for. You can expect, you can expect to enjoy the blessings of being in Christ. You can come as a welcome son, made worthy in Jesus. covered with robes of righteousness, welcome at his table. Come and ask. Lift your head. Start dreaming. Start dreaming. Some of you brothers, this is a moment for you. Just as we get ready to close today, I wonder if there'll be some dreams just in these closing minutes. Somebody just put, put your hands out in front of you. Close your eyes. It's a tough sermon. It's it's tough. That first half, a lot of it is close. And you know, it's, frankly, for some of you, it is going to be a bit of pain because there's going to be some fighting you need to do. And there's maybe even some confessing of sin and just dealing with stuff. Coming to other brothers. Maybe even for some, you need to actually go to a a wife. Just. Just maybe that's what needs to happen. I encourage you to talk it through with a faithful brother first, just so that you, a good godly man, you know what you're doing. But there's some, there are some conversations that may need to happen. But to go into those conversations knowing that the person in the universe whose opinion matters the most could not be more pleased with you. That's important, isn't it? Not trying to earn his approval, you've got it. Stand, stand in that. Whatever you have to say, whatever conversations, whoever you need to fess up to, stuff you need to say, oh, I've got to get this off my chest. Do it, brothers, knowing, knowing that your father is pleased with you. He's pleased with you. But 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 also start to dream again. Lost your wonder, some of you, your sense of wonder. Lost your sense of how glorious God is, how gracious he is, how kind he's been to you? Do you need to remind yourself of that? Do we need to linger there as we sing? Maybe just say, God, I'm sorry. Sorry, Lord. I've started to think that (laughs) maybe I started to think I did deserve this grace. Maybe I started to think it was all about how good I've been. Gosh, I'm sorry, Lord. It's all of grace you've been so kind to me I've deserved none of it bring those, those things to God right now some of you you heard me say where temptation is I want her or I want this I want this instant gratification and you need to turn that to I want God I want God and you think I can't even imagine wanting God in that kind of way I can imagine going to a meeting, but well, I can't imagine wanting God, really desiring him. <laughs> well, why don't you ask him? God, I want to know what that means. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Start to, start to ask him, God, I want to meet with you. I want to experience your goodness. I want to feel that you're special. I want to love you because you're lovely. Not because the preacher told me to because the worship leader told me to but because you're amazing because you're truly wonderful Lord let me see a vision of your lovely kind gospel shaped goodness let it captivate me and then many of us all of us in some way need to start like I said start dreaming start saying God I, I, I want to ask you for some big things I want to ask you I want to ask you Father for an impact in my life I want to ask you for the kind of success that uh, points to Jesus. I want to ask you for fruitfulness. I want to ask you for your kingdom in my life. I want to enjoy all that you have to give me. Ask him. Start to ask him. Start to bring it to him. Ask him. Ask him. Ask him.